you guys have your Bible, don't be seated yet. I included uh, the prayer this week for this section, and I would love for us to pray this, and then I will and stay standing for the reading of this scripture. So pray, pray this with me as we get into Revelation. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Blessed are the readers, hearers, and keepers of this word. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who have been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year will release to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops is twice 10,000 times 10,000. The the number mounted 10,000, I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire of sulfur and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and the fire and smoke and sulfur came out their mouths. By these three plagues, a a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by the means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent from the works of their hands, nor did they give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent from their murderous or the, or the murders, or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their theft. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys may be seated. Super stoked to preach this sermon to you today, too. Don't you love the text? I love, I, uh, I've been actually blessed by it because it makes me focus on what's really important. What does God want to speak to us today? And in this, the second woe and the seventh seal, we see the importance of worship. The importance of, of, of worshiping Jesus. We see this in a bit of an odd way. And so it's not, it's not like your typical way of seeing it. But we see what happens to those who keep us, God's people, from worshiping. Worshiping in its true sense isn't just singing. It isn't just praying. It isn't just tithing or coming to church. It is living with, for Jesus with all our love and our affection. With all our hearts, our minds, and our soul, worshiping is what we get to be about as Christians. And this includes all parts of our lives, every single part of it. We don't separate uh, ourselves from our individual parts. We worship holistically to God. And worship in and of itself is actually a very selfless act. It's a selfless act. We are saying that we worship Jesus because he is better. That we found a God who is worthy of all our praise. And so we attempt to give all our praise to that God. Worship is something that we live or we embody that as Christians. 
And we do this, and we can do this in each and every breath that we have, each and every step that we take. Worshiping Jesus is the true measure of selflessness. It's the true measure of selflessness that we have in this life. We die to self so that Christ might live through us. That is what we do. That is what worship is, that we die to self so Christ might live through us. And we strive to be grace and mercy to others because we've been given so much grace and mercy. And and it comes out of the overflow of that, that we try and serve our fellow man with that to show them that, hey, there's this God who is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. And without him, our life as Christians would be impossible. He is our life, our breath, our bread, our water, our light, our path, our way, our shepherd. He is truly our everything. And that's why we worship him. But worship is also, it's something that we live, but it's also an act of defiance. So I like this one because I like acts of defiance at times. And in our worship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are defying the world and its empires. We are defying Satan and his demons. We are defying sin. And we're even defying death by saying that we can find our life in Christ. In worship that is given to God alone, actually it defies all nations that ever have been or ever will be. It defies all kings or presidents or rulers It defies all earthly kingdoms. It even defies all earthly corporations and earthly standards and earthly norms or whatever those may be. And it even um, stands against and defies individuals that want to take the place of worship away from God and have it for themselves. Let me say this in another way. We, in worship, we pay allegiance to Christ and Christ alone. We pledge it to no other place. Worship is a selfless defiance in that way. It is an exercise in resisting sin and focusing all our attentions on God the Father and the Lamb who was slain. This selfless defiance isn't always welcomed by all. We can, we've seen that throughout history. There are those in this world that demand to be our God, that say, no, we are the most important. Oftentimes, um, these things are important and good things, that instead of just being important and good things, they want to elevate themselves to places where they are preeminent and God is no longer preeminent. Worship's just something you do on Sunday, but the rest of your world is this is what needs to be had. And we as Christians reject that. We reject that. And I think these, um, these things uh, that often, uh, these are things that often want to take the central position in our lives. And this is in inducing idolatry into our lives. It's saying, hey, worship us. And as Christians, we won't have it. We won't have it. We're not going to worship anything of over above Jesus. As a way of example, I think of politics. Politics in America, particularly the last, I don't know, four or six years, maybe it's just because I'm getting older, or maybe because it's um, social media or something, I don't know, it's just more bombarded with it. But I think of politics. It's good to be involved It's good to be active. It's good to care. But we never elevate our politics above Jesus, ever. We never do that. We can't claim that Jesus always lines up with every single one of our political beliefs because it's not true and we're ignoring things if we do that. 
He is the king above all kings and above all nations. This is the point of Revelation. It's saying that God is bigger than these things. And we don't combine Jesus plus our politics. That's not how it works. And truthfully, we see this far too often. Amen? You guys have seen this in the last election cycle at least a couple times, right? You've seen it from different individuals who elevate politics, and politics wants to take over as God. Or say, yeah, you can have Jesus too, but as long as it matches up in this way. And so important things sometimes are taken too far. And when that happens, when we when a thing is elevated, a good thing is elevated into a position of worship that becomes gross and idolatrous, and it's a tool in the hands of our enemies to keep us from worshiping God with all that we are. All that we are. In this text, we can see what happens to those people who resist God and lead others astray. All this is is meant to be read metaphorically, but even at that, it's not a pleasant metaphor. Good things do not happen to those who keep God's people from worshiping God. God is the one who prepared for this time. He has angels there. He alone knows the hour, the day, the month, even the year. And this is important before we go on. Because over in my 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 years in church, I've seen people say when they know Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back, and Jim has a pastor that he he likes to say that the pastor, every first of the year, he says, this is the year when Jesus is coming back, and he goes through Scripture and tries to prove it and all that kind of stuff. Or I've heard people say, we know how to bring him back. If we just reach enough people in the 1040 window, then he's coming back. Like as if we're going to usher in this kingdom of God. Or if grace and mercy ever starts on time, the kingdom of God may come on heaven as it is, or on earth as it is in heaven. But if we just, if we just do something, then Jesus will return. And the truth is that we get to sink into our hearts that we don't control God. Amen. We don't control God. God is so vast that we can't figure Him out. We can't figure him out. We get to live with him and walk with him and get to know him and he gets to know us and so we get to know him better. But he is so far beyond us and there's so much mystery in our knowing of him. I think of it like this. My kids know me, but they don't know all about me. Some of you may know me better than my kids just because you you know my heart and you're a little bit older. It's like a little child who can never fully know their, their parents times a billion. That's what it's like with God. There's nothing we can do but serve in worship to God. Walk in the ways that Jesus leads us. Like I like to say all the time is step by step. We do this one step at a time, one moment at a time, one breath at a time. We don't know the end and we can't usher it in. That's not our job. God's ways and his times are far beyond our understanding. The use here, I find interesting, the use here of the Euphrates rivers in in chapter 14 i found this was interesting as we look at this as a metaphor but in this section of the of the sixth seal the euphrates in ancient kind of literature and times it's seen as a dark and demonic place in the ancient cultures it would have been akin to us going like the dark woods 
or something like that, right? That mystical place that if you go, those woods are haunted and they're going to get you. Or a haunted graveyard that you just stay away from. And, and, it, and it's meant to induce fear a little bit. And it's meant to be a spooky place with spooky just ideas coming at you. And this is the idea of the Euphrates. That this is not a pleasant thing that's about to happen. The dark woods are about to be unleashed on earth, if you will. And it's from this place that the four angels are readied and unleashed. I find that unbelievable. And from there, God unleashes his holy terror on the empires of this world. On those who are holding us back from worship. Those who won't listen and don't care. Uh, don't care and they don't show uh, God the proper reverence. And they don't think that, he's had, that he has any power. And yet God has the ability to take down any empire at any time. Any nation that deems itself greater than God in its own eyes while exploiting the, exploding, exploiting the poor and taking advantage of the land and the people or keeps God's people away from worshiping God. This is unacceptable to a father who is loving and cares about the well-being of his children. He wants us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And He'll do anything to rescue us. God's defeating strength is shown. We see an arsenal that is unleashed like nothing ever unleashed before. Billions of angels geared up for war. More powerful than any army has ever seen or roamed the earth. More devastating than any force that has or ever will exist. And it's going to defeat, in the end, it's going to defeat Satan, sin, and death. The power of God is on full display on the earth. This, is, this isn't His full force, but it is mighty. It is great. And it's meant to show His greatness and display His power. For us in the here and now, we can see what is to come and know that in faith, that some may claim that God is distant and He's not present, that He doesn't care anymore, that He's not listening to His He's not listening to the prayers of His people. But we can see that He cares far more than we might imagine. And He's more powerful than anything in this world. And we can believe that in faith. Amen? And we can do that. His might, if we haven't already seen it in His broken body and His shed blood and Jesus rising from the dead, His power is greater than any nation, any idol that the empires have produced over time. Jesus is greater, period. And I believe that the, that the fact that um, it, here, here we can see, it's not hard to get our imaginations going. Like I've said, I, I said last week, I, I kind of have empathy for those who have written about this and written like, I mean, I think of like, um, oh, what's the name of those books? Whatever. What's that left behind series or whatever, where they kind of, this is not metaphor. This is actually like what they're looking at and that kind of thing. And I have a little bit of empathy for it because this is, this is a hard horses that wear breastplates, the color of fire and sapphire and sulfur. That's what these horses. And then these horses, the heads of the horses look like lion's head and fire and smoke and sulfur come out their mouth as plagues. These are not pleasant things with tails that have, the tails that have power and they look like serpents, they even have the heads on serpents like them. These are pretty mythical creatures of epic proportion. And they wound with their heads and their tails 
And in this, a third of mankind is killed. By these plagues that come from these horses, they were killed. And I believe that the fact that plagues are mentioned here is meant to lead us to think about, as people of God, this is at the end of the Bible, right? As people of God, if we've read the whole thing, it's meant to call us back to Exodus. It's meant to call us back to the, the book of Exodus, where in the, in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Deut- uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we see God rescuing his people. All this destruction is like an Exodus account, but our promised land is not Israel. It is God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And if you were to read the Exodus account, you would see the ten plagues followed by hardened hearts. You'd see Pharaoh keeping God's people from worship, saying, no, you can't go out and worship. And then God reveals himself to Pharaoh, and he says, fine, go. And then he says, never mind, don't go. I am God, he is not. Worship me, do your work. And he does this ten times over, and Pharaoh hardens his heart ten times over. He rejects God. He holds God's people back because he feels like he can outwit and outlast God. But God is relentless in his pursuit of his people. He is relentless in his desire to be his people for worship that we alone as his people can offer this in spirit and in truth. And in the wicked, in wickedness, there are, there are humans that remain deepened or, and even deepened in their resolve to fight against God and his people. We've seen this. Their hearts, instead of being softened by God's kindness, instead of being persuaded or won over by His love, or even instead of being convinced with His disciplines and His rebukes, they are hardened to never worship God. Never. They have been shown, we've seen this in the Bible over and over again, this pattern, but we've also seen this if we look at history, we can see this over and over again, that God reveals Himself to people, And they refuse to worship. But in the end, God is relentless for his people to worship. He will not be stifled, even though wickedness has abound. And I find it very interesting. Again, we see this two-thirds. Two-thirds of the... uh, A third of the people are wiped out and two-thirds of the people survived. Not only are they survived, not only do they survive, but they're resolved even deepens to worship their idols. They've seen real power, and yet they go back to worship their idols who can't see, who can't hear, who can't walk. They didn't repent of their idolatry. Instead, they doubled down on their idols. They said, I don't know what that was, but I'm not worshiping that. So we will see over and over that God will deal with them too, the remaining two-thirds, but he leaves room for those two-thirds to repent. In, in a way, I, I look at it like this. God is always leaving room for his kindness to win us over, for his grace to astonish us. He always leaves room for grace. And just like the timing of God, we don't control it or the way, we also don't control the way that salvation works. We can't master it. We can't figure out all the ways that God is going to redeem his people. We can't presume to know all the ways that God is going to work salvation through Jesus Christ. He uses Scripture. Yes, primarily He uses Scripture. But He's also, where people, where Scriptures don't exist, He's also sent people dreams. 
He uses the witnesses of people like us. He uses worship services and then people who go out in the community and, and tell people about Jesus. Um, but he also uses visions that he gives to people separate from that. He uses Bible tracts. I got in this conversation last night with a friend of mine who says, does God really use Bible tracts? And I said, he can, he has, he may do it again. He even uses TV preachers. And this too is a mystery to me that is too great for my understanding that he uses TV preachers and all that stuff. But he's used, it's a mystery to me that he might use me or you as well. He uses these means, and I don't think that there are. Uh, I, I don't think that there are any. There's any way that Jesus won't go to rescue his own. He knows about him. He's gonna find him. He's gonna seek him out. And for those of us who follow Jesus, we feel defeated a lot. This should. I mean, in our in our day and age, and in our culture, that's true of every culture and of every time. Right? We feel defeated. This should, it should show us that there is an extent that God won't go to rescue His own. That He won't go, He'll go to any extent to redeem His own. We see in this passage, in the light of redemption of Exodus, that God is freeing His peoples from the clutches of slavery that the empires have on us that want to use us up and spit us out. God is freeing us from that. This is an all-important, worship is an all-important, life-consuming act that we get to live out each and every day. And if you remember in this scene, before Revelation 9, 12 through 21, where are the saints? They are in the throne room in hushed silence, watching all this unfold. They are before God and in their silence, there, there is worship and awe in their silence. But as we've seen, they're not alone. It's not just singing a solitary Christian. They're there with every tribe, nation, and tongue, and it's a beautiful scene. Worship, I think a lot of times, uh, especially in a culture that celebrates individualism, worship is not just me and Jesus' time. It includes those times. It's not just morning prayers and devotion. It includes a part of that. But there is a corporate element of worship. One of the great benefits of the worship of our God is that we are not alone. That we are given a community of believers to worship with us. That we get to encourage one another, bless one another, speak into one another's lives. And the way that we do this are myriad and it doesn't matter and it doesn't have to look a certain way. There's no one way to do it right. And I don't believe that there is also, I don't think that there's a way to necessarily do it wrong. We're just trying. We're all working this thing out. But there's a certain recognition that we get to see in the corporate, this gathering element of worship. Since worship, worship is a selfless and defiant act, we get to defy the self-serving culture that we live in. Amen? This is a hard amen. Where everything, every experience, every bit of knowledge, every bit of wealth, every bit of influence can be yours for the low price of blah, blah, blah. And yet at the same time, oftentimes it winds up costing our souls because we give everything we have to these things. And the culture that we live in wants to isolate us because it's easier to destroy us in isolation because 
we get to see um, the corporate side of worship as, as a beautiful bonding thing where we come together to worship God. We do it through the weeks by ourselves and we come together to worship God. I'll be honest, I don't believe Grace and Mercy Church is all that special. Or any more special than other churches. Even churches I don't like. I don't think we're more special. I'm just being honest, okay? I should like all churches, but let's just be real. I love Grace and Mercy Church, but it's not the best or the greatest church of all time. It is simply where God has us right now. And we are joining with millions and possibly billions of saints on this Sunday morning in 2021, worshiping Jesus. We are joining in a host of others with prayers. Think about how many people prayed our Father this morning. Millions and millions and millions and millions, if not billions. Think of how many people sung songs to Jesus like we already have. Think about people who have opened up scriptures and read them. And and people that have sat through sermons and have taken communion today. This is... This small gathering is just an inkling of what Jesus is doing worldwide and we are joining in something far greater as we worship God our Father. My favorite words to say each week, and I mean this wholeheartedly, are please stand with me as we gather together to worship Jesus. They serve as a reminder that we are not alone. That we're in this together, that we're striving to worship Jesus in spirit and truth. And as we gather together, we minister to one another far more than we might think, far more than we might comprehend or realize in this moment. And I pray that this may be an important part of who we are as a church, that we can gather together to worship Jesus. Let us think of worship as an important tool that God uses to strengthen us and shape us It's an exercise that He gives us that we can do. And let us see the lengths that He will go so that we might worship Him once and for all and forever. He loves us. Amen? He wants us and wants to keep us together. And He continues to lay... We get to continue to lay down our idols in selfless defiance and worship Him. Because the truth is, is that if we just give in to the empires. They want to destroy us. And God wants life for us instead of death. So Jesus, we ask for life and not death. May you do this in our lives. Lord, we want to worship you with all that we are. We want to give you all that we are. Lord, we don't do this perfectly and we're so thankful for your grace. But Lord, will you continue to work in and through our lives. Lord, will you show us what it is to be a witness to one another as we're about to take communion. In Jesus' name, amen.